All right, folks, so we're coming into the home stretch of this Live No Lies teaching series. Um, we started out talking about Satan or the devil, and we identified him as an intelligent spiritual being who is, pun intended, hell-bent on separating us from God. And if he can't separate us from God, at least make us indifferent. And the primary way that he does that is through lies, or what we've been calling deceptive ideas. We just finished up the conversation about the flesh, the second enemy of the soul, and how that's this inclination that we have to do wrong things, mostly around these physical cravings that we have, and all the while thinking that we're right, and we're not involving God in that decision-making process at all. And um, when it comes to Satan, we talked about the Word of God as the primary tool to combat his lies memorizing and meditating and replacing the lies of Satan with the truth of Scripture. And when it comes to flesh, we talked about living a disciplined life, engaging in things like service and confession and fasting. And so today, we're going to look at the last enemy of the soul, um, which, again, this thing is based on a, a book by John Mark Homer called Live No Lies. And um, he refers to it as the world. Scripture refers to it as the world. But so here's the thing. In the same way that um, we identified the flesh as an enemy of the soul. It's not our physical bodies, right? God created our physical bodies, and he said when he was done creating humankind, very good, very good. Um, we're created in his image. He also, God created the world. He thinks his creation is good. He charged humankind with caring for his creation. Jesus says to uh, a religious leader who's having trouble getting his mind around who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? God loves the world. So what is it that we're talking about when we say the world is an enemy of the flesh? Here's one definition for you. The system of practices and standards associated with a society that attempts to live as if there is no God. Uh, from a gentleman named Gary Brashears. The world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign, though his deception makes that hard to realize. Disorder, we have the deceptive ideas of Satan, right? We have the disordered desires of the flesh, and those, those disordered desires get normalized in a sinful society by the world around us. So when we throw terms out like a sinful society or the world, these conversations can fall um, victim to or get hijacked by some faulty assumptions. And I just want to address those up front. We're going to define this idea of the world a little bit more and how we work within it. But I want to get these out of the way because my guess is at least one of you is, is having one of these thoughts right now. Okay, so here, here we go. The first one is we don't, um, we don't fight with worldly weapons. It's not specifically and exclusively a people problem and not talking about becoming monks. Right, so no worldly weapons. I shared the scripture with you already. For we, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. That means we do not use violence. We do not use military force. We do not use political influence. We do not lean on legislated morality to bring about the kingdom of God to help people come to know and grow in Jesus. Though, like. You may hear terms like dominionism or theonomy or the seven mountain mandate or Christian nationalism. Those things are all about civil religion with a Jesus veneer on them. Super, super dangerous because they have a little bit of truth in them, just enough truth to kind of to reel us in. And that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're going to talk about 
you know, we've been talking about the weapons that we have at our disposal all along, and we'll, we'll finish that part up. All right. Uh, another faulty assumption is this is not a people problem. Again, this is a scripture we've already talked about. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Some of you will probably be very disappointed in me that I do not call out the libs or the right-wing nutjobs, right? Whichever side you happen to be on, this is not, this is not a people problem. This is Satan working within the world systems to pass along his deceptive ideas and to normalize the stuff that God would n rather we didn't do. All right? Last one. This is not about becoming monks. This is Jesus' prayer the night before he died to his disciples, about his disciples. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus' disciples, and he goes on later in that prayer, to say, to pray for those who would come to believe in him through his disciples. That's us, right? Those who would come to believe in him through his disciples. It's the same prayer that we would be unified and we would do the same things that they do. Jesus sends his followers into the world to be the light of the world. And I am all about a slowed down spirituality. I am all about a contemplative lifestyle. Right? When we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at um, things like uh, solitude and silence and fasting and prayer, all what we would consider monastic practices that he engaged in, they always propelled him back to the world, back into the world, so he could heal and free and release and teach and care for. Right? So we're not, about, we're not talking about run into the run into the mountains and setting up a little commune out in the hill so we can just stay there and be safe from the world that's not what we're so get those faulty assumptions out of the way we'll talk a little bit biblical descriptions of this idea of the world guys ton 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 of scripture references they're all in the handout they're in the online notes if you just want to click on them i would encourage you to check out these references on your own um, during during the week 1 John 5.19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Right? In the initial de definition I gave you, the world is defined as being in control of Satan. Satan is in control of this present age. Right? That's what the Bible refers to it as. There will be a time when he is no longer in control, when, when God wraps everything up. Um, John 16, 13. I have told you these things so that, this is Jesus talking, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus wants his disciples, he wants us to know that life is hard. Right? We cannot avoid suffering and hardship. And to my knowledge, Christianity is the only belief system that promotes the idea that there is no hardship, no struggle, no heartache that is wasted. That Jesus will work in and through even the hardest things in our lives. Not that he necessarily wills those things to happen, but if our circumstances, if somebody else does something screwy, if we make a mistake, that even in those things, Jesus can work. And he has ultimately overcome the world. You remember way back when we started, the prayer I, I suggested that we use is Jesus, thank you for winning the war. Please help us to fight these battles. All right, so this one's a little bit longer. This is from 1 John chapter 2. 
Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. Here's where John defines specifically the things that make up this, this system. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. All right, so lust of the flesh, right? Physical cravings. We spent a couple weeks talking about the things that the flesh kind of twists some of the natural desires that, that God has, has given us. Lust of the eyes. If we look at something when we want it, right? The, the old-time Bible word for that is covetousness. And then um, the pride of life, self-aggrandizement, the desire to be seen as more than we actually are. And in the book, John Mark Homer points out that there is nothing new, right? He says that these three things, he points back to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says this is the sin of Adam and Eve gone viral. And here's what he's talking about. This is um, Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, right? Uh, physical, physical cravings, pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, right? Covetousness, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. I'm going to be smarter than God. Self-aggrandizement, right? Making ourselves more than we actually are. Nothing changed. You guys, that's so, I don't know if you, I, that's, and getting ready for this, this is the first time I've ever made that connection between the things that drew Adam and Eve to that fruit and the things that John talks about being the, you know, what the, what the world is made, made up of. So as we think about today, right, nothing changes the uh, lust of the flesh. We think about our current cultural moment and our current sexual ethic as a, as a culture, Go have as much sex as you want with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Doesn't matter who you objectify in the process. Doesn't matter who you hurt. Go have sex. No responsibility, no strings attached. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. We live in perhaps the most consumer-oriented culture in all of history. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. New, 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 more, more, more. Sparkly, sparkly. Right? It's really, really difficult to not fall, fall into that. And then um, the last one about the, the pride of life, the self-aggrandizement. I would point you to our current climate of, um, it might feel a little extreme to use this word, but rage. Right? When you see clips of people in the grocery line like going off on each other for whatever reason, Twitter tirades, whatever it happens, never mind like at the national level, like how our, our politicians conduct themselves or how other countries' leaders with our leaders can conduct themselves. So the three things that I would point you to in our cultural moment is sex, consumerism, and, and rage. And one of the definitions talked about these things being systematized, right? What, is, what does that look like? This seems like a, an individual thing. So let's stop for a minute and let's think about, and if any of you are involved in any of these industries, I apologize, advertising, entertainment, technology, capitalism, social media. Right? Think about how those things not only work on their own, but when they come together, technology and social media 
and, and entertainment or capitalism and advertising. And they come at us and they're like, everybody else is doing it. You should do it too. It feels good. Why not? So let's, let's take a non-emotional kind of example. This is, uh, I get this email every morning called the morning brew. And it's like a highlight of business kind of blurbs and stuff. I'm just going to read this to you. A new study from the Journal of Consumer Research found home renovation media is responsible for a shift towards standardization. And its author told the Washington Post home improvement shows and design magazines make people feel uneasy about the choices they make for their homes. Meet the market reflected gaze, right? The market reflected gaze. That's what the study dubbed the internalized idea that a future home buyer can judge your decorating choices. In an effort to maintain the value of their home, people are ignoring their own idiosyncratic design choices in favor of mainstream elements like neutral finishes, stainless steel appliances, and Pinterest popular decor. Again, sorry if that's like, this is what actually in the, what my kitchen is in the process of becoming right now, so. <laughs> <clears throat> um, at a grand scale, it's peer pressure, right? John Mark Comer in the book used the phrase, monkey see, monkey do. Everybody else is doing it. Let's jump on board. Let's do it. Now, you take that and you move into the things that we were talking about earlier, and the stakes become much higher. Right? You talk about our sexual ethic. You talk about financial management, what we give, what we save, what we spend. I think at no point in time have pay-as-you-go, things like that, and paycheck advances have ever been utilized more, right? You look at the, um, the, the credit card debt of the, you know, the average, the average American. This consumerism, the stakes get much, much higher. And then this idea of rage, I would just point you to the idea of if we look around us and we see, like the most watched commentators are the loudest and the rudest and the most aggressive and uh, you know the clickbait that when you go on YouTube to watch one of my sermons again, because I know you guys watch at least three or four times a week. Come on, you guys! <laughs> <clears throat> but like the clickbait that shows up in all the other videos, right? So and so destroys this group, and he's talking about a sermon. I, I don't. Last I checked, I don't think I'm. You know, anybody who is teaching a sermon is supposed to be destroying anybody. how we think about and interact those with whom we disagree, right, plays right into this, uh, this cultural rage moment that we're in. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but the idea of loving, loving our enemies. Um, so this stuff is serious, you guys. The stakes, the stakes are high when it comes to what the world has normalized and what we think about and the pressures that we get put under to think about this stuff in a ungodly kind of way. So what's, um, what are we to do? How do we combat the world? And simply, it's simply this, is God offers, it started out as being the truth and the way, still, Jesus still is the way, but now it's incumbent upon us to direct people to an alternative, offering an alternative. And so this week, we're going to talk about how we do that personally and next week, we're going to talk about how we do that 
as a group, what that, what that looks like. And so this all gets encapsulated in this idea of holiness. It's kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't use a lot. We don't think about it a lot. And I was super, super convicted this week as I was studying for this. Like, I don't really remember the last time I thought about how I'm doing with my level of holiness. And the definition is set apart or other, that hagios is the, the Greek, the, the New Testament. Um, R.C. Sproul calls it a strict adhere, not, not a strict adherence to the rules, but rather taking on the character of God, or as we might say, just becoming more Jesus-y. Like that, Norbert? Okay. So um, let's dig into this a little bit. The, the alternative is a pursuit of holiness rather than a pursuit of the things of, of the world. The scripture references down there, the first two from Isaiah and Revelation, they're both accounts of prophets who had visions of themselves in God's throne room in heaven. And they try to capture as best they can with our limited vocabulary what it was like to be in the presence of God. Crazy, crazy description of thunder and the room shaking and and weird celestial beings covered in eyes and and just god expressed as as jewels and precious metals just really the crazy crazy stuff and people have tried to draw it based on on the um on the descriptions but they're very very intense images and both isaiah and both john when they find themselves in that position they fall on their face and Isaiah says, woe am I, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He recognizes who God is and who he is before this holy God. And then in First Peter, we read Peter quoting from 20 different places in the Old Testament. God says, be holy, he's talking to his people, be holy because I am holy. Right? So God is set apart, God is very different. He's inviting us into that alternative, set apart, other, different. And then the reason why he wants us to do that, that Matthew reference that, that's up there is from the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about Jesus is talking again to his disciples, to a group of people, and he's calling people to be salt, and he's calling people to be light. Salt, preservative and protective. Light being guidance and direction. And we do that so people can live with God and can find God, both those who are already walking with him and those who may not, may not know him yet. So how do we engage in this pursuit of holiness? First, God does a work in us, and then we join him in that work. God does a work. The Father calls us. The Holy Spirit draws us through God's word, through our circumstances, through friends, through other people. He draws us to him to a point where we, like Isaiah and John, recognize who God is. Perfect in every facet of his character. Holy, loving, just, merciful, kind. And we recognize who we are, just like Isaiah did. Right? Before this perfect being. We're people in need of saving. And when we come to that point, it's through the power of Jesus, his life, death, and his resurrection that we have the ability, 
right? We join, we, that's at the point when we can join God in his work. We come to Jesus and we recognize our need for forgiveness. We recognize our need for saving. We recognize our need for Jesus to sustain us. We think about that moment of coming to Jesus as like a point in time thing. And like we just need to be, we need to be saved once more. We need Jesus to sustain us. Dallas Willard says that Christians should burn grace like jet fuel, like a plane taken off. Right, that we need that grace from Jesus to, to sustain us. And then, let's kind of, with that sustaining power, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, answering God's call upon us, we use the tools given to us. We turn to the pages of Scripture for knowledge and for wisdom and for direction. We turn to prayer for the power to do things that we could not do on our own. We turn to prayer to... to um, shape our desires and our hopes and our dreams into those of God. That our hearts and minds would be moved by the things that move God's hearts and minds. And then with that knowledge and wisdom and that power that we receive from God, we are able to make choices from the inside out. Right? This is not, again, Dallas Willard, not sin management. We're not talking about just not doing the wrong things. We're talking about becoming the kind of people who live out of God's character, who are becoming increasingly more Jesus-y. All of the New Testament passages talk about holiness as an increasing thing, right? We, our desire for holiness will never be satisfied. We will never reach perfect holiness this side of heaven. And that's okay. That can be hard, and, and we need to wrap our brains. It doesn't mean we're, we're failing in the process. It just means that God has called us to be holy as he is holy, and that doesn't get fulfilled this side this side of heaven. And then finally, we surround ourselves with people, our peers who are also trying to live lives of holiness. We, we identify some mentors, some people who are maybe a little bit further down the road who can guide us, who can give us some direction. And then we put ourselves in a position to hear from teachers and preachers and pastors, whether in person or online, who will guide us to becoming the kind of people who live like Jesus, who put on the character of Jesus. All right, I'm going to ask the, the band to come on up. So you, I, I know I was talking fast, and I know I threw a lot at you. So here's, here's my one thing for you for this week. I would encourage you to go read those throne room accounts. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and Revelation chapter 4. And read them multiple times. Maybe read them once a day, both of them. That, you know, uh, Isaiah 6 is not very long and even just the whole chapter of, of Revelation 4 is, is not very long and just take in try to put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah or John and put yourself in the throne room of God and then allow yourself just to react how, like whatever that realization does to you because when we are captivated by the holiness of Jesus he opens the door to freedom from the world. He opens the door to freedom from the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you um, that you have indeed overcome the world. Uh, we thank you that you are holy like no other. We thank you that you call us into that holiness. Spirit, would you make us the kind of people who are um, just always striving to put on the character of Christ, that we would clothe ourselves in the image of Christ. 
and the big things of our cultural moment and how we think about sex and, and money and anger and the little things that confront us individually every day. Spirit, we ask that you would move, that you would move in power. Lord Jesus, draw each one of us one step closer to you this morning and so doing that you would make us that little bit more holy to be a little bit more like you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen.